Pray with me. God and Father, as we prepare now to hear from your word, I pray that you would be speaking to us, though we are sinful, that you would be building us up with it and making us more like Jesus, and that you would be speaking through me, though I am sinful, that you would be helping me to build up your church and speak truthfully from your word. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our world is deeply broken right now. We especially feel it. I mean, first of all, the last few years, I feel like a number of folks that I've talked to have had this sense of brokenness about our world in terms of how divided our society is and how much hate people seem to have for each other and how much we seem unable to talk with and connect with and find common ground with each other. And in the last few months, we've felt even more of that brokenness thanks to the coronavirus pandemic as we are dealing with hard realities, um, both of the disease with this invisible killer floating in the air and with loneliness and uncertainty economically. Our world is deeply broken. And then in the last two weeks, we've had still another layer added on that, the killings of Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd, especially as we saw videos of those killings, reopened a lot of deep wounds of racial hurt and revealed a lot of hard things for a lot of people in our country. And so we had that level of brokenness, seeing that, that brokenness in our society. And then even beyond that, as people have been protesting, some of those protesters have turned violent and businesses have been looted. And so we feel that level of brokenness as well. And my heart has been heavy all week as I have watched all of that. I have been grieved. And I was reflecting on all of that as I was sitting in this text and found myself thinking about Simeon and Anna. This is how Luke describes Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon lived in a world that is just as broken as ours. Israel was ruled by tyrants. Roman centurions stood on the street corners, and revolution was in the air. In fact, just a few years after this story, while Jesus is still a boy, there are going to be revolts, in Israel as Judas of Galilee leads this attempted rebellion against Rome, and Rome bloodily crushes the rebellion, and there's much violence and hardship there. And along the way, Judas also burns people's farms and slaughters their livestock because he sees them as complicit with the empire. Simeon is in this broken world. And we can see that, let's talk about that phrase from verse 25, the consolation of Israel that he is waiting for. That means the comfort of Israel, and it is an echo back to this famous call in Isaiah chapter 40, where the prophet Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here's the thing about that cry from Isaiah. When Isaiah speaks it, it is written as Israel is being led into exile that God 
is sending, as his people are led away in captivity by these foreign powers, this promise of comfort and salvation, that the brokenness that they're experiencing in that moment of exile won't last forever. And Luke, as he has Simeon pick up those words, wants us to understand that Simeon says he is still waiting for that comfort that Isaiah promises. Except that promise from Isaiah was written 600 years before Simeon speaks these words. Simeon lives in a broken world, longing for God's blessings to finally come and for it to be healed. I think about Anna, too. She represents a sort of more personal experience of brokenness. In verse 36, it says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So Anna is a widow and has been for decades. We don't have all the info about her life, but assuming it was a normal course of things, her husband died when she was 23, 25 people in that era got married early. So for more than 50 years, she has been alone in a society that is not friendly to widows. And I'm sure she is lonely and faces many personal struggles in that place. So her world is broken too. We can really see both levels of brokenness in Simeon and Anna. The big picture societal brokenness as Israel longs for God's consolation and the personal brokenness as, as we as individuals experience the hurt of this world and long for God's comfort. We can resonate with everything that they've experienced. And that is because the world has always been broken. It has. I think there's a tendency in moments like this for us to start to convince ourselves that this moment is somehow unique or exceptional. We say things like, well, I'm sure that Jesus is going to come back soon because look at how bad the world is. It's never been like this. Except that's not true. It's a mark of our short memories and our privilege. First, of our short memories. We forget just how brutal life often is in this world. I mean, I've been reading lately about 1918 and 1919 and the flu pandemic then because of the, the parallels with this current coronavirus crisis. But here's the thing. The Spanish influenza, first of all, it hit right after World War I. So it hit this world that over the last couple of years had had, up to that point, the bloodiest conflict in human history. About 40 million people died in World War I. And the Earth's population was only like one and a half billion. So in modern terms, that would have been like 200 million people in the world died in World War I. That's what it would have felt like to them. That's half the total U.S. population. And then just as the war ended, this disease sweeps through the world and kills another 50 million people, which again, in modern terms, would feel like another 250 million people. 6% of the entire globe's population was killed between that war and the disease epidemic that followed it. And my mind can't even wrap its head around that. So, so part of our issue is just that we have short memories and we forget how broken this world is. And then we also have privilege, which apparently is a politically loaded word, but it's just, in the first place, think about we live in one of the wealthiest countries with one of the best healthcare systems in the world. I think part of why COVID-19 has come as such a shock to us is because we're like, wait, you mean people can get sick and die of diseases? And people in countries that are not blessed with as much 
wealth and prosperity as us are thinking, yeah, of course you can. Or the current racial tensions highlight that too. I think those of us who are white can at times have this attitude that says, wait, you mean that race is still an issue in our country? I thought we had fixed that. But of course, if you asked anyone who wasn't white, who had had racial slurs yelled at them and faced various injustices in the system, they would say, of course those things are still there. You just haven't been in a place to see it. Our world is deeply broken. It is a mess, and it has always been a mess. And so we, like Simeon and Anna, are waiting and longing for God's consolation, God's salvation to come. So then here's what from this text I want us to see this morning. Two things. One, that Jesus is coming to make things right. But two, not yet. Jesus is coming to make things right, but not yet. And then given those two truths, I want to talk a little bit about how we ought to live in this world in light of that. First of all, Jesus will make things right. He will. Listen to Simeon's prayer, verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon meets this baby Jesus, and the Holy Spirit gives him supernatural insight into who this child is. Who is this baby? Well, he is salvation for God's people. He is coming to rescue them, to rescue them from the guilt of their sins and the consequences of their sin, which are manifested in their exile. He's coming to rescue them from all of the brokenness of this world. And he is a light of revelation for the Gentiles, which means that he's going to be gathering in people from every nation to worship him. He's going to break down the, the tribal divisions between Israel and the rest of the world and gather all sorts of people in. And he is glory for Israel, meaning not just that he like makes them feel really great about themselves, meaning that he would restore them to their proper place of glory. Their purpose was always to show forth the glory of the Lord to the world, and that's what he's going to help them do again. Anna sounds a similar theme. While we do not get her prophecy written out, verse 38 tells us that coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna is saying that in this child, the redemption of Jerusalem is at hand. To redeem means to buy out of slavery, to buy back. And Jerusalem here isn't just the city, but it's a stand-in for the whole people of God. God is coming to deliver his people out of the hands of that which enslaves them. So Jesus, they are saying, is coming to make things right. They look around at the world and all of its brokenness, and they say, Jesus is coming to heal this to fix this. Jesus will make things right. And right there we might ask the question, wait, but isn't the world still broken? What are they talking about? How is Jesus coming to fix that? And we're going to talk about that question in a minute. But I don't want to leave this first point too early because I think it is also something we get wrong and that can cause issues for us. So let me explain something very important about how we think about what Jesus is coming to do in the world. When we talk about brokenness, I think we can talk about it biblically on two levels, two levels, the physical 
and the spiritual. There is physical brokenness, disease and death, political and cultural hostility, poverty and other social problems. That's physical brokenness. And then there is spiritual brokenness. We are separated from and hostile towards God. We sin. We are guilty and deserve judgment. We are spiritually broken. And in Scripture, the important thing to recognize is you cannot separate those two kinds of brokenness. They are deeply interwoven and connected with each other. They are... Um, they're, they're, they're woven together, but, but I say that because we have a tendency, I think, to separate them out as Christians and to focus only on one or the other. And that can lead to some dangerously mistaken ideas. On the one hand, some Christians have separated those things out in a way that focuses only on the, spirit, or on the physical brokenness and ignores the spiritual brokenness. This is sort of the mistake that we can think of being made by more theologically liberal denominations who focus on social justice and helping the poor, but do it in a way that ignores the spiritual dimensions connected to that. They are not calling people to repent of their sins, to be washed in the blood of Jesus, to experience the new birth of the Holy Spirit. And that is a serious mistake. It turns Christianity into an attempt to socially fix people while never actually having them experience salvation. But other Christians have separated the brokenness in the other direction and focused only on the spiritual brokenness. And that is a mistake that we in more evangelical circles make. We can focus on evangelism and salvation and being born again and do it in a way that ignores the real physical dimensions of our sin in our world. And we need to address those two. Since we're more on that side, I just want to name... Here is why that's such a problem, because something that we have done at many times in the past is use that sense of spiritual concern as a mask for evil in the physical world. For a long time, that was how our forefathers defended slavery. People like Richard Baxter or Cotton Mather, great minds of the faith in many ways, here is how they approached the issue of slavery and racism. They say, look, God created and cares about all human beings. Anyone can be saved spiritually. Black people and white people alike all can have their souls saved. But that does not mean anything for their bodies. They, they would have said that black bodies were made to be slaves and white bodies were made to be masters, but someday in heaven um, our souls will dwell as equal. Do you see why that's so destructive? That, 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 spiritual, um, that spiritual concern becomes a wall that they're hiding behind, a way to avoid these real problems in the physical world, which again is an issue because the Bible does not separate those two sorts of brokenness. It says that the world is broken both physically and spiritually, and that God is coming to bring salvation and healing in both the spiritual and physical realms. God does care about the spiritual. We cannot lose that. If we do, we cease to be meaningfully Christian. We must oppose people who would ignore our spiritual need for repentance and salvation. But God also cares about physical brokenness. He desires the world to work justly. Isaiah 61, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense.
For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. God has a special affection for the poor. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he belongs. Or Micah 6.8, which famously puts it, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God even cares about issues like the racial divisions we're wrestling with as our country. Here's how Paul talks about the racial divide between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus in his ministry addresses both the spiritual and the physical needs of people. He points out their sin and calls them to trust in him for salvation, and he heals them and feeds them and cares for their bodies. Jesus, at his return, will address both the spiritual and the physical needs of people. He will destroy indwelling sin and end the curse of death and topple the thrones of tyrants and bring justice to the earth and repay the poor and comfort those who mourn. All of which is to say, even though we're going to make clear in a minute that we cannot fix all of the world's brokenness by our effort, please do not let that become an excuse not to do what we can. We as evangelical Christians need to be especially cautious of using the spirituality of our faith, which is real and important, but to not use that as an excuse not to be faithful for the ways that God does call us to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow and to cross the lines of division that the world tries to put between human beings and just in general to seek justice and love mercy in the world. Jesus cares about those things. Jesus is coming to bring salvation in a way that encompasses all of that brokenness, both the spiritual and the physical, but not yet. Not yet. And that is the second thing that we have to understand as well. So Simeon blesses the baby Jesus, declaring he's the source of salvation and light and glory, and then he turns to Mary and gives her a very different sort of blessing. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Just imagine you're Mary and Joseph for a minute. How do you feel about that? You've just heard this incredible blessing about the greatness of your infant, and then the falling and rising of many in Israel, a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce your own heart. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Simeon. What? The second part of this blessing reflects the reality about Jesus's ministry. He is coming to do all the things that Simeon said, but the way that he is coming to do them is not what anyone expects. They imagine Jesus as a warrior king, coming to make this world right by force of arms. And instead, Jesus comes and enters into human brokenness and bears it himself on the cross, and through that, begins to work salvation for the world. 
That's what Simeon's talking about. He will be a sign of God that many in God's people will oppose. He will be pierced and Mary's own heart will be pierced and broken as he dies on the cross. Why is that? Why is Jesus working that way? Well, we get a hint in the first and last parts of this blessing. Jesus is coming to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and he is coming to reveal the thoughts of our hearts. We talked a few weeks ago about the theme of the great reversal in Luke, and this is one of those core themes that Jesus is coming to bring about this great reversal, turning the world upside down, because in doing that, he's actually turning the world right side up. And that is why Jesus has to come this way. If Jesus came as a conquering king, if he came with power and force, that would not actually change the world. This world is deeply broken. Just look around. People use power and violence all the time in this world to pursue what they want. And justice um, would, would, would result ultimately in that just being obliterated, trying to win by breaking the other side, trying to just come with that kind of force, it would not change this broken world. It would destroy it. Instead, Jesus comes, rather than as this conquering king to change things from the top down by force, he comes initially to work from the bottom up, to turn things upside down from the bottom rescue us from our sins and rescue us spiritually, and then, from the bottom up, create a people who are also being rescued physically and rescuing other people physically and spiritually to create this new community of the church that breaks down the lines of division and engages in personal repentance and seeks to show mercy and lives out God's good way of living on the earth. Jesus is at work from the bottom up that way in the world right now. And then, yes, at the end... He will come in power and bring final justice. He will wipe the world clean of evil and make all things new, but he will do that only after he has finished that bottom-up work. Let me try to stress the core thing there. Our job as the church is essentially to be a community of people within this broken world who live in light of the world that is coming. We should be living with the values and priorities and power of Jesus Christ. Imperfectly, yes, we are all broken by sin and will always be humbled by the reality that we fall short of that calling. But that's our goal, that we live together and live in the world in this way that is a window into that world that is coming. And that as we do that, we begin to invite people into it and see people be changed. That is why there's a not yet to the work of Jesus. Because that is the stage of it that we're in now. And that means two things when we think about the world. Two things. One, it means in this age, we will always have imperfect justice and peace. I want to be careful here, because nothing I'm about to say means we shouldn't work for good in the world. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's part of what the church's mission is, is to seek to work for good. But it won't ever be fully realized. We will never fix everything. The world will remain stubbornly broken. And that is not an excuse not to do what we can, but that is a reminder that we should have appropriate expectations that keep us from becoming discouraged. We should long for good in the world and work for it, but we should realize that our efforts will not usher in the kingdom of God. If we think we can, we will become either angry or defeated. Angry? 
getting so frustrated at the world that we just want to blow it all up and tear it all down, or defeated, we will just give up in despair. In this age, we will always have imperfect justice and peace. But two, this not-yet-reality also means that we have real hope that the world will be repaired. Jesus will make things right and destroy disease and death and violence and racial division and all of the brokenness that weighs heavy on our hearts right now. And again, that is not an excuse not to work in the present. It is not that we're sitting on our hands watching the world burns until Jesus comes back, but what that should actually do is motivate us. Jesus cares about those things, and he will come and fix those things, and there will be peace and redemption and light and glory, which means that we are struggling against a defeated enemy. We know how this story turns out. The problems in our world will be beaten, and we do not need to live in fear of them. We can engage with them knowing that Jesus Christ is with us as our king and that in the end he will make all things right. So that is the big picture as we think about this broken world. Jesus will make things right, but not yet, but in the end he will. What do we do with that? How should we then live? Well, let me just suggest two applications that I think we see in this text. And the first is to be faithful where you are. Seek to be faithful to Jesus in the place he has put you. This story really stresses the faithfulness of each character. We see it with Mary and Joseph in verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now first, just a note about that. This is actually one of the places in the New Testament where we get a hint that Jesus probably grew up very poor. Mary and Joseph are offering the sacrifice that Jewish law required you to offer for your firstborn. But if you read about it back in Leviticus, what you realize is that the normal sacrifice is actually a lamb, but that if you are too poor to afford to sacrifice a lamb, then you could instead sacrifice a pair of birds. And that's what Mary and Joseph are giving. But the broader point is this. Jesus' parents, in the little ways God commanded them, were seeking to be faithful. The same thing is true with Simeon and Anna. Anna is especially striking in verse 37. It says, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna did not let her heartbreak or loneliness or the brokenness of her life make her become passive. She didn't engage in self-pity. Instead, her life was characterized by faithfulness, even though she's experienced tragedy. All of this should be a reminder and an example to us. Look around at the world. Think about that brokenness you see. What is it? What's weighing on you? Is it the loneliness of folks at home because of the pandemic? Is it people being economically hurt by the lockdown? Is it people of color who feel excluded and abused by society? Is it anger and violence and division in our world? Those are all things that we should grieve. But what we as Christians must do when we see that brokenness is then to ask, how can I be faithful in that, in the place that God has put? What can I do in the place that God has put me to seek to be faithful and show forth his kingdom and his care? 
And the answer to that question will not be fix those problems for the world. You and I cannot heal the broken world. But that shouldn't discourage us. Instead, we should simply say on a more personal level, there is much good that we can do. And so we ought to seek to do it. Despair is the grief of the devil. Godly grief always drives us to action. So when you feel that brokenness of the world, ask what it looks like to grow in faithfulness where you are. And I don't know what that's going to mean for you. And maybe you're going to have to spend some time sorting through it. When you wrestle with questions like race or when we wrestle with questions like like, like how to help people when the economy is such a mess, those are things that you should read about and ask questions about and explore. But what I can tell you is that if your heart is burdened for that, that is a good sign that Jesus is calling you to engage with it. And then the second application is to wait and hope. To wait and hope. Look at how this passage ends. We have these declarations of salvation, and then in verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Which is to say, years pass. The seasons turn. Rome still rules Israel. Revolts happen. Blood is spilled. Simeon and Anna both presumably die, having seen the beginning of God's salvation, but not its conclusion. And we, farther down the road, we've gotten to see more of this story than them. We've gotten to see the cross the great act of God's suffering for our brokenness by taking it upon himself, and the resurrection where he breaks the power of sin and evil in the world. More has happened, but we are still in a season of waiting like they were. The world is still broken, and everything is not as it should be. And so we are called to wait. Waiting is actually a posture encouraged all through the Bible. If you want to do a word study, on the call to wait on the Lord, it might be fruitful for you. Take this from the Apostle James. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. James is saying, Wait patiently, wait for the Lord, as he does his work in his time. And again, when I say wait, I don't mean don't do stuff. We should seek to be faithful as we wait. In fact, that is what biblical waiting means. It is anticipating, preparing, trimming your wicks because you do not know when the bridegroom is going to appear. But what we need to do is faithfully wait, faithfully wait in the midst of the world's brokenness with our hope in the reality that Jesus will return. Because that is the certain truth that helps us to be able to wait. That the work of Jesus is not done yet. He is not done with us. He is not done with the world, but his work will be brought to completion. One of my favorite verses about waiting in the Bible comes from Psalm 27. It says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. At the end of all of this, Jesus will win. The world will be restored. Evil will be defeated. The things that divide us will disappear. 
That is our source of true comfort in this season. That is the thing that drives us and supports us as we seek to serve God and work what good we can. So take hope in that fact and wait on him. Let's pray. God and Father, my heart is so heavy as I see the the terrible evils that rack this world. Lord, I think of innocent people being killed. I think of the real hurt and division that still characterizes our society. I think of the, the history of things like racism in our world that I've been sitting with again lately and reflecting on and how deep and how, how ugly those scars run. Jesus, I think about the, this disease that continues to be a thing that we wrestle with and be uncertain about the future because of. Lord, this world is broken. And so I pray, first of all, as I think we always have to pray in the face of such evil, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord, hurry and bring your work to completion. As certainly as you died and rose again, so certainly will you return. And at your coming, all will be made right. Lord, I pray that you would come and heal this world. But I pray as we wait for that day, that you would be helping your people to faithfully minister to and serve and work your good pleasures in the world around them. May we be a beacon, Lord, that others might look at and see the light of your love. May, may we shine forth your glory before the world. May people, may people look at the hurts and the pain and the ugliness all around them and say, what hope is there? And may they see in our communities and in the ways that we treat each other and conduct ourselves and move through our neighborhoods and, and, and selflessly love others and give up of our own interests. May they see in that, Lord, a picture of hope. And that as they see that picture, may their eyes then be lifted to see Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of that faith, and may they be drawn to him. Pray this all in his name. Amen. And now, friends, join me as we pray the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray.